Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Miss Octavia Bright. How are you doing? Um, excuse me, it's Doctor. Doctor, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just say you? that so that you can correct me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you set me up so well. Um, I am actually full of the joys of spring. I'm just overjoyed to feel the warm air on my skin. I went out without a jacket today. It was very exciting. And I'm also finally almost back to normal post-COVID, which feels good. I've been working very hard on writing my book, which is scary and also good. And um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm going to Athens for a week soon to do some reading and peace out, which is very exciting. And just, I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like a human being who's just living their life, (laughs) which actually after everything of the last few years just feels extremely special. So I'm kind of cherishing it. But how about you? You sound bunged up. Yeah, I am bunged up. I got over COVID. Then I went to the London Book Fair and went to a lot of parties and mixed with a lot of people and got sick again. So so I'm ill, but I regret nothing. I love parties. I love spring. The cherry trees are in blossom right now. Life is good, even if I have a cough. So yeah, I'm I'm not bad. Super spreader events are worth it if they are fun. That's not what I story. I shouldn't be endorsing that publicly, but yeah, I had a great time. No regrets. (laughs) Um, But on to the show. Today, we are thrilled to welcome the author Amy Liptrot, who is here to talk about her second book, The Instant. This is a memoir of Amy's move from Scotland to Berlin, where she searches for raccoons, tracks the moon, goes to techno clubs, looks for boyfriends, falls in love, and has her heart broken. It's also about connectivity and the instants that change our lives. And so in honor of Amy's book, our theme today is The Instant. We'll be thinking about those moments in literature when things turn on a dime, whether it's a single action that reverberates around a community or the rupture of a breakup. Literature is filled with memorable instants during which everything changes. So we'll be digging further into those today in addition to interviewing Amy, But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Amy, Octavia? I sure can. Amy Liptrot is the author of The Outrun, which was a Sunday Times bestseller and also was on Book at Bedtime at the time, I might add. She writes columns and reviews for various magazines and newspapers, including The Guardian and The Spectator, and recently presented the BBC Radio 4 series, The New Anatomy of Melancholy. The Outrun was awarded the Wainwright Prize and the Penn Ackerley Prize and was shortlisted for the Welcome Prize and the Andachi Prize. It was a BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week, maybe instead of Book at Bedtime, actually, but Anyway, featured on the BBC Radio 2 Book Club. Also, as a reminder, we are on Patreon. If you would like to support the work that we do and get extra content, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash litfriction. You get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as a chance to suggest topics for us to talk about. In our latest Patreon minisode, we talked about our great love of audiobooks. So hit us up at that link. Give us your sweet, sweet money. (laughs) Yeah, and your suggestions and we'll write back to you if you'd like. (laughs) What a reward. In other big (laughs) news, we have a limited run of our very sturdy and stylish literary friction totes. And if you're a patron, you get a discount, although you can also buy them if you're not a patron. We sell them on Etsy, so check out our socials for the link. Finally, you can find a list of some of the books we talked about today on bookshop.org. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Amy Liptrot, a discussion of instance in literature, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. So sit back, relax, and let us change the course of your life forever over the next hour of literary friction. I love it when you overpromise. <laughs> love it. <laughs> Amy Liptrot, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Hi, thank you for having me. I was really chuffed to be asked. So we've asked you to start with a reading from the instant. Do you mind setting it up? Uh, It doesn't need much setting up because it's the prologue. So I think I'm just going to go straight in. 
Prologue, February, Hunger Moon. I've been getting text messages from the moon. A note flashes on my phone, asking if the moon can track my location and I consent. I have moved to a new city, but the moon is following me around. It texts to tell me when it will be out. Through the windows of my flat in Kreuzberg, there is just a parallelogram of sky at the top of the courtyard, only a small space to catch the passing moon on certain clear nights. B said that people move here just so they can tell their friends back home they're living in Berlin. B said that people moving here often feel they've dropped several years, that they can extend their youth. The app uses my location to tell me the moon's phase, direction, distance at all times. Right now, the moon is 384,012 miles away from my hand, which is holding my phone close to my heart as I sit at the table in this narrow kitchen of this flat with tall windows in an old-style apartment block, stinging nettles by the front door. I'm just home from work, vibrating with tiredness. The moon is waxing gibbous and 25.2 degrees above the horizon, almost due east. It rose just after midday and will set around 3am. I run a bath, consult my digital charts, then wait for the moon. My bath is next to the window and I open it wide to the cool air. I hear stray cats mewing in the stairwell, magpies rattling in the bare trees, and the indistinct rumble of the city that reminds me of the wind back home. My first sight of the moon is its reflection in my opposite neighbour's window, a bulbous glow in a double-glazed mirror. Over the evening, it passes like a distant ship. I keep going back to the window and I'm thrilled to catch its oblivious light. In the stairwell, there are political graffiti and signs, anti-gentrification, pro-refugee, anarchist. The building used to be squatted and there are still some communal elements between the flats, shared handyman and Wi-Fi. I hear the neighbours around the courtyard, sex and arguments in various languages, someone playing the flute, a baby crying. Every 1st of May, there's a big techno party in the courtyard. It's electric around here. I've been wearing long skirts and fingerless gloves, painting my nails like I used to. I've been going to parties. In the English language bookshop, I read aloud from the Odyssey while two Norwegians played synth. I run away, but I'm finding the moon everywhere I go. I found a tiny pink plastic crescent in Tempelhofferfeld, a huge park in the middle of the city, right there on the footpath. In my first week in the city, I found a beautiful lunar calendar in a bookshop and have it blue typed to my wall. Twice a month, at new and full moon, I await Zizigi, the instant when moon, earth and sun are aligned. The lunar calendars are almost all I have in my diary for the year. My future is blank, but I know what the moon will be doing. I've been in Berlin for four months and have lived in five houses. I've been cycling over cobbles. I've been keeping my devices charged, wearing shorts I found on the pavement. I've been sitting outside spatey corner shops, smoking roll-ups, drinking club mate, watching attractive and strange people on the street. I had a love affair that lasted for two nights and two afternoons. People in this town can't commit to anything, but the moon is always orbiting and the months pass relentlessly. I don't speak the language, but I know der Monde. My attachment to the moon grew during the years I've been lonely, and so did the moon's attachment to me. The moon, I tell B, is my boyfriend. Wonderful. I love that introduction. And I wanted to start by asking you why you wanted to write about this period of your life when you moved from Orkney to Berlin for a year. I guess a lot of the reason for me moving to Berlin was to find new things to write about, new experiences and inspiration. So I wrote, you know, I kept notes and wrote my diary furiously during the time that I was there. I often didn't have a lot else to do. So I was there for one year. And at the end of this time, I did have uh, quite a large body of of work. But I felt like that, that year had a particular mood and vibe. And there was a particular kind of subculture that I encountered there. And also a subculture of people and a subculture of wildlife and the types of 
uh, birds that exist in the city. So I just wanted to write something to try and capture that that time and place and, and my experiences of it. And as is clear from that really beautiful prologue, the moon is a really kind of important presence in this book and shows up as, I guess, like an organizing principle. Every chapter begins with the kind of moon that I suppose is happening at the time of writing, or I wanted to ask you about that. But with the structure of the book, I wondered whether the moon as an organizing principle was something that you began with, or did it come later in the process of putting the piece together? I think it came later, actually. I had one one section of writing that was quite similar to that prologue, which was about the, about the moon. And then when I decided to put it at the beginning and I knew that it was going to be this exact year I was writing about him. So I thought it made sense to, to split it into the all different moons, which have these traditional names, which are often based on seasonal happenings or agricultural events of that time of year. So it's quite a well, a well um, worn thing to set something over a year in the seasons. And this is just quite a pleasing way to do it, especially as the moon is so important to me. I loved learning all the different names. I'd never, I'd heard of a hunger moon before, but I'd never heard of a strawberry moon. And there was a whole different, this is like this whole world of lunar life that I I now really want to get into. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. I I didn't, sometimes you don't know when you write that if it's just very well known knowledge or it's overdone or if it's new information. That's pleasing to me that it's sort of new information to you. Oh yeah, big time. (laughs) Yeah, I think like harvest moon is quite well known. They come from like a, a mishmash of different cultural backgrounds. Like some of them are more linked to kind of British agriculture, but I think some of them come from maybe like Native American. I think the slightly different, the American ones are slightly different to the British ones. And I actually just picked and chose a little bit the ones that seemed most pleasing to me or fitting to the content of the chapter. Like I think February can be cold moon and it can be hunger moon. And I just kind of, you know, was a little bit free with what I chose to use. Yes, uh, hunger moon is definitely better than cold moon. <laughs> um, but we're talking about the moon and also you alluded to the nature in Berlin. And I think you could call this book a form of nature writing. But I love that it's about nature in the city. So it's raccoons and goshawks and very urban landscape of Berlin. And I wonder if you wanted to deliberately push against our traditional view of what nature writing might be, which is often, you know, men going out into the countryside and experiencing a kind of bucolic version of British nature, for instance. I think I certainly wanted to draw attention to the fact that nature isn't something you have to go out and find, that it's all around us, certainly in the city. But it was something I became more and more attentive to during the time I'd I'd been back home in, in the Orkney Islands. But then once I'd become more attuned to these things, I, I noticed them more in, in the city. And actually a lot of wildlife, like mammals, like foxes and, and raccoons, are doing much better in cities than they are out, out in rural places where like, modern agriculture sort of pushes them to the side often. They're kind of living off the things that we discard and being very adaptive. And this time of returning to city life after some time away, knowing about the birds a little, or at least being willing to listen out and to learn, really gave me a whole depth of new dimension to my experience of living in the city. Like noticing that when I first arrived in the Schönefeld airport in Berlin, that the crows on the on the runway were hooded crows, which are the same crows you find in the north of Scotland, rather than carrying crows, which are the crows that you get in London. And that was pleasing to me to draw the links between more northerly places rather than more southerly places and find out more about where the dividing line is between these two species. So just being alert to these things is very fruitful and pleasing to me, and I I want to show it to other people. Carrie and I both especially love the chapter or the scene when you go to the club Berghain and you experience it like being in the sea. And your first book, The Outrun, which was a memoir, the sea kind of plays a very important role in that story as well. And I wonder if you felt the echoes of that book in this book and and in that scene in particular, if you felt your kind of your relationship with the sea and your relationship with the club I don't know. I, I I was curious about that connection and it made so much sense to me. At one point you say a friend told you to move through the crowd. It's better to dance than to push. And it was a very evocative sense of kind of, 
you know, like seaweed blowing under the water and everything. And I'd never thought of that link before between a club and underwater. But yeah, did did you feel echoes of of your life by the sea in other parts of Berlin life or in the club only? It was a funny thing for me to move to Berlin because it's really far from any sea. It's one of the capital cities or major cities that's as far from the sea as you can get in Europe. I did find myself seeking out water. There's a lot of um, lakes around Berlin. There's um, fantastic public swimming baths um, outdoors and indoors around the city. And I spent quite a lot of time um, exploring these uh, fabulous architecture and, and public places. I did go out to one techno club and I really just had this, it reminded me of snorkeling and these kind of strange, beautiful beings kind of moving around me and the, the sense that the loud music has some similar effects to being underwater in that sound behaves differently or it's like people are moving more slowly. And when I went out to, to Bergheim, which is this big, famous um, techno club, I actually deliberately went there with the idea of um, further thinking about this idea I think I tweeted uh help me I've gone to a nightclub in search of metaphors but it was quite it was was really quite deliberate like that and I had my little notebook you're not allowed to take phones into Bergheim so I was scribbling on my little notebook when I was like on the dance floor and at the edge I was there for a few hours by myself sober sitting around smoking and dancing but it was just like the images were just like coming to me so uh, I'm always trying to seek that kind of creatively fruitful time like that where it was just the kind of comparisons and ideas were were really it was midsummer night as well which is often a very uh, creatively uh, inspiring time to me and then yeah the, the whole chapter became like an extended metaphor about being in a techno club like being under the sea that was actually one of the first chapters that I had of the book and it was sort of my guiding model for some of the other chapters in that I like this idea of having one extended metaphor over an entire chapter like the one about online dating is also about looking for raccoons in the city so I I have a few chapters that are yeah these I carry on I just I really push the push the the images like slightly maybe unexpected things kind of juxtaposed together I love that and so come to the club in search of metaphors. That really made me laugh. Um, so Octavia mentioned The Outrun, which was your first book, which is also a memoir. And that is set in Orkney. And it's in part about your recovery from addiction and being in Orkney and, and how those two things interact with each other. And, you know, in this book, you talk about being sober. And I was thinking as I was reading it, obviously, it's not as present a theme or an idea, but did you see this as a kind of continuation of a recovery memoir of of sorts? Like, is this book also about recovery for you? I actually think I I tried not to write about, well, certainly not about my drinking and and not so much about my recovery. But now, um, you know, sort of uh, several years sober, it's um, very much part of who I am. And there's just probably just a handful of mentions of it, like the fact that I'm sober in the club or that I'm I'm sober when I go on dates. So I just I guess I wanted it to be a little bit about the possibilities of sobriety, about moving past everything being about the struggle and the drinking. You know, I wouldn't have been able to to move to Berlin and get on all right and get a job and friends and everything if I'd been my old self. So I think, you know, both this book and hopefully my life is a model of of, you know, what you can do in, in, in sobriety and the, the possibilities of that and rather than just going back over the bad old times. I tried not to write about it, but it's it's there. It's the kind of foundation of everything for me, really. So much of this book is about living in the age of the internet and what possibilities that opens up for us and the joy that it can contain, but also the potential perils of it. Um, I love the way you describe your relationship with maps and looking on Google Maps and exploring cities far away online and then bringing your actual body to Berlin and doing it in real time in the city on the actual streets. There's a a line in it where you say, in many ways, the internet is my most stable home, which really stood out to me. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that and what that feeling is like for you. Yeah, I was thinking the other day about how been trying to have a little bit of time offline but it's not like that's me being in the real world because the real world is you know the internet for me my friends are on there my peers are on there people that I've known for years and years you know longer than people in places that I've lived or 
jobs that I've worked in. I have relationships with people that I've followed around uh, different websites and blogs and, and social media. I've had one internet address, but like 30 addresses. I have a different, slightly different identity, you know, on different parts of the internet than I do in other places. That's such an interesting thought though as well, isn't it? Just the way that like the version of ourself that we get to be online, in some ways it can maybe feel even more multivalent than ourself in the three-dimensional world and the way that the different platforms that we use I'm the same I mean I'm online a lot and I am definitely completely the same on each of the different platforms I'm on because also they draw out different sides of our personalities don't they like Twitter is mainly words and Instagram is mainly images and even just in that split you have a different relationship with how you present your consciousness I suppose. You saw the the joy in that as well because I I really didn't didn't want to go down the, the sort of well-worn idea of um, the the negative sides of digital technology. I see most of these things as simply a kind of amplification of our human tendencies anyway. I think that relates to nature writing too, because one of the things I really liked about this book is I think we tend to kind of separate nature and the internet. We we think they can't coexist with each other in the same way that we kind of separate the urban from the quote unquote natural. But I love how you integrate all of those things in this book. And you see is the, the internet is actually a really fertile ground for discovering things about nature, like that app you have about the moon and its different phases. Like it's it's a way to kind of amplify and explore nature in a, in a new way. And I, I really appreciated that as I was reading. Yeah, I use maps a lot and I use um, different websites with bird calls on them to to double check stuff and, and ID websites. And I've had really cool apps that tell me about the, the tides or when it's going to be high and low tide at different places around that surfers use. There's some fantastic um, apps out there and uh, also things that tell you about what the aircraft are that you see in the sky. You can go and look them up and what the um, vessels are that you see at sea. You can actually go on a, on a real-time map and click on them and find out where, where the vessel's from and where's it been and where's it going and where's it, where it's registered. It's stunning. All, all the possibilities are at our fingertips. It's just up, up to us to choose what bit to click on. And I just quite like having the juxtaposition, just the, the added dimension that it allows you to write about. Like, it's just a passage where I'm walking down the street in Berlin and somebody's trying to sell me drugs. And then I've also got Beyonce in my ear. And I just like the sort of juxtaposition that it offers up. Sometimes just something happens. I'm like, that's going in my writing. Like uh, when I was in, in Orkney and I downloaded Tinder, the people that it showed me on there, because it's an island, they were people on uh, oil rigs out to sea or passing, <laughs> passing fishing boats because it's location enabled. And I just like kind of little things like that that get thrown up and I kind of squirrel them away to, to write about sometime. Yeah, that's great. It brings whole new meaning to, you know, the idiom, there's plenty more fish in the sea. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing I really wanted to ask you about is you use this really fantastic device that you borrow from Andy Warhol, where in his diaries, you explain in the book that he refers to himself as A, and then whoever is with him as B. And so instead of using the names of the people who kind of blow in and out of your life and your friends and acquaintances over the course of this year, you use the letter B instead of their names. And I loved it. And I thought it was also a really interesting way to get around the kind of question of how do you write about other people, you know, when you're writing a memoir. And I wonder if you felt like it liberated you a bit in that, or if you felt it made it less complicated or or more complicated. Yeah, it meant, it meant I could be more free and easy with, with other people, but also it helped to protect their anonymity and, and obscure their identities. And also I felt like it was really really sort of leaning into the the fact this is a, a subjective book about myself. It's about my experience and how I see things. And it's not trying to be objective and showing other people's lives and experiences and just sort of almost drawing attention to the artifice of that rather than sort of trying to do justice to a friend and their whole self in a couple of images. I also like that you don't tell us what you're doing right away. And so I was like, wow, this B person is so important to her and has such a big role in her life. And then and then I sort of started to realize it, but it's hard not to see 
them as all a conglomeration of one person, which actually sort of worked for me. It was like you had this voice of a friend sort of surrounding you and uplifting you wherever you were, and they all melted into (laughs) each other. I really liked it. And it's a way to think about community in a different way. I don't know if you meant that, but by referring to your friends all as the same person, it felt like there was a kind of polyphonic voice that was guiding you through your journey or something like that. Um, I liked it. Ah, that's nice. And I think it does, uh, a friend of mine who read the book said that it seemed to mirror what she called the, the continuous now of being online a lot. And, or maybe my own experience of talking to different friends, but almost feeling like I'm having the same conversation. I guess it's very much how it feels to be one person with other people passing by. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah. I, I know that some people, you know, don't like it or wouldn't like it or it feels... Um, it feels it makes other people thin or it's in, incredibly ego maniacal but i think i wanted to to draw attention to the fact that to write a memoir is ego maniacal um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> i actually i wanted to ask you more about that not necessarily um egomania but i about the art of writing memoir because i'm just always interested in what you talk about and what you leave out and we haven't really talked about it yet and you alluded to going on tinder and one of the big things that happens in this memoir is is a very intense and passionate affair and the breakup of that affair. And I really appreciated how raw and open um, that that part of the book is and and kind of detailing the the obsessive feelings and actions after the breakup, which I'm sure many readers, myself included, really identified with. But when you were writing those sections, especially, which do feel very personal, I wonder, how you thought about what you were going to give the reader and what you were going to hold back in terms of your own experience. I will say that what I give the reader is a very small part of the relationships and my real life. And it's just a few details that I think are interesting is in terms of literature and um, and rather than all the comings and goings of the relationship, there could have been you know, I could have written about it in a much more comprehensive way, but I just wanted to give enough to have a flavour. And um, what I was particularly interested in was not a portrait of the other person in, the, in this relationship, but about it being about my part in it and my reactions to it. And that's really what I what I concentrated on and the, the aftermath of the relationship. But I wanted to, you know, I had to have something about what happened in order to, to understand that breakup, including I had to have some sexual content because that was, you know, really important to, to understanding the relationship. But I think I um, ethically kind of am okay with writing about it because there could have been so much more and worse that I could have put in, to be honest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, it's quite embarrassing to be writing about these things and particularly as a woman in my mid late 30s who has previously written about getting healthy and being quite kind of um uh you know having some life experience behind me but to find myself back in this place where I was bewildered and and in pain it's quite you know very revealing to write about these things but you know I've spent a lot of my life being heartbroken and it being the major thing that obsessed me and that I've written about in my diaries and I just thought hell I'm gonna write about this actually in my in my published work because it compared to wider uh, world affairs it's it's small and trivial but to the person that's in that time it's the biggest thing and it's hugely human love and seeking a partner and and all this is is important actually and um because it's so kind of obsessed and confused me for such a long time I, I wanted to write about it and I wanted to write about this one relationship and breakup which is by no means the biggest or 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 most important of my life as a kind of symbol of all the others that I've had and all the others that other people have I wanted to sort of honor that sadness and confusion and all, all the you know to really sit with it and look at the reasons why and the weird things that you do and the way the way that digital technology kind of only amplifies these experiences you know it's also it's so wild because I think that heartbreak is one of the most relatable experiences for human beings, yet it's something that we all carry shame about. And it's, you know, like I found reading that part of the book, as I'm sure most of your readers will have done, like incredibly consoling because it's an experience I've 
had as well. And as Carrie said, like she could also relate to it. And and I think absolutely the fact of digital technology and grief in general, and you do talk about in the book that a breakup as being a kind of grief that no one else is feeling, which was a very powerful evocation of what it feels like. It's an extremely personal loss and it's an, a loss that remains ambiguous because as you say in the book, the other person hasn't gone and you can find out things about their life when you'd rather not, or they can interrupt your present by showing up on your social media and all that kind of stuff. And like, I just think that that is a, it's a really interesting and ripe thing to explore because heartbreak is one of the oldest subjects in literature, but digital heartbreak is like this whole different world, you know? And so I'm really pleased that you did write about it, but I also totally understand why you might feel a bit weird about it, just because culturally we don't make we don't make space for this experience to not be something that one ought to feel a bit embarrassed about, even though I don't think we should feel embarrassed because it's so normal. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, thank you very much for that. It's encouraging. And I know and it's about the way that I have dealt with heartbreak, which is perhaps as an addict, particularly kind of obsessive. Some people are able to just delete the other person's emails and move on. And uh, But I think a lot of us aren't. And a lot, a lot of us have done weird stuff around cyber stalking or storing old photographs or, you know, studying text messages to find clues. And when I was doing book events for the Outrun and people asked me what I was writing next and Sometimes I said it's about the digital aftermath of a relationship. I could feel this sort of intake of breath and some people that were like, you know, this is kind of like, oh, that's a bit on the nose or, you know, that other people are and also oftentimes when I started asking people about it, they'd come back with stories of mad, embarrassing stuff that they did. And yeah, I'm glad it's out there, I guess. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that I'm well past it. I mean, that's the thing now. It's like I'm totally past it and it's not so intense but I'm glad that I recorded those experiences and feelings kind of in the rawness of it yeah I wonder also about the title the instant when did that come to you and why did you want to call the book the instant unlike the outrun where I had that title from the beginning I didn't have this one but I was thinking about a lot of ideas for the title. I did think about calling it the present tense, which I'm sure has been done before, but those kind of ideas at the moment. Like I've got a line in the book which says, I'm living in Berlin. Everyone says I'm, I'm living in Berlin at the moment or for the time being. So the idea of things being very transient, which is tied into sort of ideas of inst- instant gratification. So these are the sort of the ideas that I was circling around looking for the time and then the instant being an instant of time. Um, but the other things I was... The theme in the book is to do with light and talk about the the internet is made of pulses of light, these tiny, you know, microseconds of through fiber optic cables. So kind of these ideas of there's not one set meaning of, of the title, I suppose, but readers have already have already given me different interpretations. But I guess because the, the book is written in present tense, present tense lends itself to writing about instants, to writing about moments, very sensory, short, first hand experiences rather than more kind of complicated like time periods so I think the title is connected with the style and the subject matter well also I mean I'm sure plenty of readers have said this to you and I'm sure you have noticed it yourself but also the the whole thing with the internet the weird paradox of the internet in that it creates these ways we can express ourselves in an instant and feel like they're quite disposable but also actually they're not instantaneous and they stay there yeah, it spools away, but uh, it's still maybe there. Uh, particularly, yeah, what someone told me that pictures sometimes get deleted because they take up a lot of memory, but words are often hanging around in some cached version of a of a website from from a long time ago. It's very distressing to think about sometimes <laughs> <laughs> the drivel of mine that remains on a server somewhere. Um, and I was thinking about writing too. You know when we're talking about the internet, but also I wonder if, if writing is kind of a way to make an instant more permanent. And if that's one of the reasons why, why you find yourself wanting to capture experience in this way. There are two things in the book. There's this very immediate gratification kind of sensory world, but then I'm also interested in sort of deep time and history and archaeology. So there's a kind of tension between the very immediate and then the uh, deep time and I talk about as well my, my sort of fear of of being lost and and why you know, I found it distressing to have photographs of me deleted from the internet because it kind of it played into my 
my fear of being lost. And I think that's a motivation as a writer that you have is to is to try and capture things and try and try and stop them being lost and try and make use of them. And I constantly yeah, I kind of feel that if I haven't written my diary for a few days, then things are lost. And yeah, that's a nice, nice way of memorializing the instant and then the instant and then the instant and then making. Well, Amy Liptrot, it has been a, a total pleasure to have you on Literary Friction. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Oh, thank you for your uh, really thoughtful readings and, and questions. It's been really nice. This episode is sponsored by Picador. Tying into the theme of the instant for this month's episode, we wanted to take the time to think about those books that explore sudden shifts, stories that can turn in the blink of an eye. These might be literal changes, where someone or something interrupts all that was familiar, taking the narrative to new territories, or those books that approach familiar themes with a fresh new take, restlessly playing with language and experimenting with form. Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies by Maddie Mortimer is one such novel that does both. The novel begins when Leah receives devastating news that her cancer is back. Suddenly, Leah, her husband Harry, and daughter Iris are faced with the unthinkable, the death of a mother. Leah tries to keep the boundaries of her past, her present, and her body separate. But bodies are unpredictable places, harbouring characters old and new, loved and forgotten. As Leah's condition worsens and the voice prowling inside her body takes hold, Leah and her family are faced with urgent questions about what it means to let go, to forgive, and to die with grace when you're just not ready to. The Guardian have described it as sharply funny, delicate and persuasive, and stylists have called it a novel unlike anything else. Maddie Mortimer has received praise from Sarah Moss, Megan Hunter, and Daisy Johnson, who called it an extraordinary kaleidoscopic dive into language a profound, moving, and genre-defying novel celebrating desire, forgiveness, and the darkness within us all. Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies by Maddie Mortimer has been long-listed for the Desmond Elliott Prize and is now available at your local independent bookshop. Okay, Octavia and I are back to talk about the theme of today's show, which is the instant. We're thinking about this pretty broadly. Mainly, we're going to be thinking about those moments in literature when things turn on a dime, the moments in our lives and in books when things change forever. But we also want to think about breakups because I think that's a really interesting part of Amy's book, but also an interesting instant in which everything changes. But first, I want to ask you, Octavia, what do you think is so powerful about the idea of an instant when everything changes? Well, I think it's partly because most of us live in denial of the fact that that's just how life is and things are constantly changing and constantly changing for reasons that are outside of our control. I think we like to believe we have more of a hand in how things are going to turn out for us than we actually do most of the time. And sometimes it's just good luck that <laughs> carries you along and makes things go your way, you know? I feel like so many of the social conventions we've built over millennia seem to be about building structures that deny our fragility, you know, they deny our mortality, whether that's things like marriage, you know, institutions like marriage that are all about kind of forestalling the idea of endings when actually, as we know, many marriages end <laughs> before their time, um, or thinking about totally practical things like pensions or acquisitions of property, bricks and mortar, things that we hold on to because the truth is you can't take any of that stuff with you. And it's really actually in the instance that things change forever, you know, birth, death, betrayal, impulses towards change, sometimes totally catastrophic accidents. Like these are things that happen in moments. And I think a lot of the time, the stuff that affects our lives in the most profound way are the things that are unforeseen, you know, things that you do that go against the kind of person you thought you were or accidents that happen to you or gorgeous things that befall you that are a huge surprise that change your life. And I know that we can't keep that in mind all the time if we want to get on with living. And I think this is one of the things at the heart of the human condition. Like, how do you hold the tension of 
this idea of eternity with the fact that we are totally fragile and and will all die you know yeah <laughs> um <laughs> i think you're right it's about it's about a feeling of powerlessness over our own lives and everything could change at any moment and i think that's as you say both terrifying but also kind of freeing in a way you know that the the possibility of it in addition to the the fear is is very exciting and important. So that's part of what the fascination is and the truth of it is. And I think literature is a great place to explore that, almost like making true the fear and the excitement that we all hold around this possibility. You know, we we can kind of see it play out in a story. I think that's one of the reasons we turn to novels in particular is like a place where our our deepest desires and our greatest fears are are played out in front of us and we watch them unfold and and see how characters deal with those things. It's also just a great narrative device, isn't it? Because rupture is narrative. Um, Everything spins out from one moment. Uh, It it makes sense for everything to change because that gives you a plot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. The plot of our lives. Yeah. So um, what are some particularly memorable instants from literature that you can think of? The first one that came to mind immediately for me was Atonement by Ian McEwan, where um, everything changes on this one thing that one character sees. And I don't want to give it away, but um, it's I remember when I read that book for the first time, it was so powerful because it's kind of about misunderstanding and the misunderstandings that children make all the time because they have an immature understanding of the world. And so they take things literally that obviously have a totally different meaning if you have the maturity to understand fully. And that's something I've always lived in horror of. I live in horror of misunderstandings making huge changes to my life or the lives of people I love. Because as you say, that kind of thing makes good plot. And I feel like that is actually at the heart of a lot of plots, maybe of films as well, but just, you know, the the missed letter or the misunderstood note or something. (laughs) Yeah, I have a great fear of that too. I have a, like, one of my biggest fears is that through some kind of misunderstanding and mistake of my own, I will just get in trouble with the law and like be convicted of murder and go to jail. Oh, love. <laughs> well, I would always bail you out. First but of all. you might not be able to because of uh, a misunderstanding. Yeah. But yeah, I, atonement is a great example. Also, not to give too much away, but it's also about art and literature being a space in which we can fantasize about the ways in which things may have gone differently. Mm. And, um, and, you know, of course we can't do that in life, but we can do that in books. We do, you know, an author has control over what happens after these instants when things spin out. And I think the best metafictional works, especially are, are thinking about stories, ability to kind of change the course of events. Mm, yeah, very true. I was thinking about, no one is talking about this by Patricia Lockwood, which I think is a great example of a couple of different ways in which instance can happen in books. The book is kind of two parts. One, the first part is this very online person, and it's kind of written almost in online speak. And then something happens in the narrator's family, and everything changes. And And not only does everything change in her life, but actually the, the actual style of the book completely changes. And I loved that, that the kind of the language itself and how the character is interacting with the world through language shifts when this one instant changes her understanding of the world and the way in which she lives in it. Yeah, that's such a good example. Another one I was thinking of was The Days of Abandonment by Elena Ferrante, which chronicles the chaotic time after the moment of unwanted change, really. So the kind of unraveling in the aftermath of this affair, the psychic unraveling that happens to its narrator. So it's less the instant itself, but kind of what follows. Yeah, totally. And and actually breakups, as we talked a little bit about, are kind of instant, aren't they? Like there's this moment when everything turns um, in a breakup and there is the before and the after and we see this breakup as the instant. So do you think that that a breakup is good fodder for literature? I do because it's so relatable. I mean, I think there are very few people on the planet who haven't been through a breakup of one kind or another, whether that's romantic or platonic. But um, I also think the thing about breakups that's so fascinating is that, you know, they usually involve... (laughs) two people, <laughs> if not more, um, sometimes, but you know, there's, there's two different experiences of it. And maybe for one person, 
the breakup feels like an instant for the person who's broken up with. But the person who does the leaving, it tends to not be an instant at all. It tends to have been a slow unraveling over time. And that in itself is just a fascinating mismatch, really, of experience. Yeah. And so much of a breakup, and and Amy does this a bit in the book, is like kind of searching for the moment when things went wrong, when like maybe we could have changed things because of a misunderstanding or because of something that we said when things shifted. And actually, that's kind of a fundamental misunderstanding usually of of how breakups happen and why people choose to be with or or not with other people. Like in this case, the instant is, is actually a kind of comforting idea that maybe there was that moment. Maybe it's not a slow death, but rather, you know, something that in a different universe could have turned out completely differently. Right. Or maybe it was because you wore the green dress instead of the red dress and he hated green and therefore it wasn't about you. It was about the dress or, you know, whatever it might be. It's about control, isn't it, as well? And like the fact that sometimes it can feel quite random what works out and what doesn't. And that's quite frightening. Yeah. And that gets back to this idea of we have no control over our lives. (laughs) Yeah. You just got to go with it, baby. Release yourself into the miasma of time and experience. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I was looking at um, lists of great books about breakups and one of them that came up is The Pisces by Melissa Broder, which I know you're a big fan of. You know, I love that book. What do you think is good about that in terms of breakups? Oh, it's it's a brilliant look at the obsessive as well, actually, like the obsessive need for love and lust to fulfill something for us. And then the terrible shock of of when they stop working in that way. Uh, It's also looking at kind of addictive ways of relating to these things similar to, to Amy. Yeah, totally. Another way I was thinking about the instant is those books where one event kind of connects everything in a novel. And I I love novels like that. I've talked mm. about this novel before, but Let the Great World Spin by Colin McCann. Every chapter, I think, features a different person, but they're all connected by witnessing um, Philippe Petit when he walked between uh, World Trade buildings in the 70s. And that's a great way to show also our instant is not necessarily just our own instant. <laughs> it's yeah. often something that we share with other people. And everyone's experience of this moment is different, but they're all connected by one moment. Um, yeah. And I love that. That's such a great example. The other thing I was thinking of, the other book was Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, which I'm listening to at the moment on your brilliant recommendation. And there's a scene where one character's girlfriend shows up unexpectedly. And in that moment she notices something about him and the man he's talking to that changes his life forever and in her timeline it's the tiniest thing and she just it's like an observation that she throws out thinking that there will be no consequence and the consequences for him are completely enormous and that that is another thing about these these instants these moments you know that that they don't carry equal weight for both parties and you don't know which side of the power dynamic of that moment you're going to be on, right? Are you going to be the person saying the thing thoughtlessly that changes the course of the other person's life? Or are you going to be the victim of the thrown away observation, let's say? Yeah, our instants are both our own and not our own. Bumper sticker. That was, <laughs> that was, ter- that was a terrible <laughs> summation of your very smart point. Anyway, um, what book do you want to recommend when we're thinking about the idea of an instant? Well, the one that came to mind actually was a novel called All the Birds Singing by Evie yes. Wilde, um, which we interviewed Evie about many, many years ago. You can probably find that conversation somewhere in the archives. But um, it's this incredibly atmospheric novel, which is told in two different timelines. One set in Australia, which unravels backward into the past. And the other one is set on a remote British island. And that one's unfolding in the present. And it, in essence, these two timelines are unfolding on either side of this instant. And it's about this woman called Jake. She's on the run from something dark in her past. That's all I'm going to say. I don't want to give anything away, but essentially the catalyst for everything that changes turns out to be just a thoughtless action that has terrible consequences. It's really electrifying and it's a really thoughtful look at things like consequences and responsibility and how we live with the unlivable with. Mm, I love that novel. What's yours? Well, I would like to return to the novel The End of the Affair by Graham Greene, which I know I've talked a lot about on the show, but I don't think I've been talking about as much recently. And 
it is a beautiful novel, but it is such a good novel about instance and also breakups. I mean, it's there in the title, The End of the Affair. But the pivotal instant in this novel happens in the middle of the novel, really. So it's about this this affair between a writer named Maurice and this woman, Sarah, who is married. And they're trapped together in a house during the Blitz, and they almost die, and then they don't. And then immediately after that, Sarah breaks off the affair. And part of this novel is, is Maurice trying to understand why. And what is so amazing about the kind of structure of the novel is that we only find out at the very end that the instant in that moment in the Blitz was the reason why. People talk about it as a romantic novel, but I actually think it's a novel about like powerlessness and And faith. faith. Yeah. So yeah, I would recommend anyone read this novel and while you're reading it, think about instants. Yeah, well, also, it's a really great example of how when you're locked within your own consciousness, you assume everything is to do with you and everything is your fault. And what you can never have in reality is what a novel gives you, which is the insight into the other person's consciousness, where you discover it wasn't about you at all. It was about their faith, or it was about their need for something different, or it was about them, really, you know? Totally. Which is freeing. So freeing. Yeah, everyone is the star of their own film, right? Hey, Carrie here, back with Octavia and Amy Liptrot, our author guest, to give our book recommendations. Octavia, would you like to give us yours first? I'd love to, and I'm extremely jazzed to be talking about this book. Um, it's called Bodywork, The Radical Power of Personal Narrative by Melissa Phoebos. I think it's just about to be published in the UK by Manchester University Press, if I'm right um, in thinking. And it actually feels like a great companion to your writing in general, Amy, this and The Outrun. Um, And it's something that I found incredibly helpful as I'm working on my book at the moment, which is also a memoir. And this is kind of a masterclass in memoir writing and also memoir, (laughs) a kind of fabulous hybrid, basically. And I've not read Phoebus's other work, and they've been on my list for a long time. And having read this now, I'm going to bump them right up. But um, her first book was a memoir called Whip Smart, which was about her time getting free from a heroin addiction, and also working as a dominatrix in the States. She's American. And then she published an essay collection called Abandon Me, which was about an incandescent obsessive love and its dissolution, where she finds, even though she's sober, her addict self shows up in another form. And then she also wrote a book called Girlhood, which explores the gender narratives that we inherit when we're born in female presenting bodies and looks into her own experiences growing up. So she writes in this kind of personal and political way, um, zooming in and zooming out from her own experience to kind of wider ideas about the world. And this book, Bodywork, reflects back on all of those previous works of hers and really digs into the why and the how and the risk and also the power of using herself as a subject and what the memoirist does when they write about themselves. And she reflects on some of the responses to those previous works and also the process of writing them. There is a lot of kind of really interesting insights into how to dig for deeper and more insightful truth when you are writing about yourself. Sounds wonderful. Amy, could we have your recommendation, please? I'm recommending Time on Rock, subtitle A Climber's Route into the Mountains by Anna Fleming. And it's about her own experience and development as as a rock climber over about 10 or 15 years around the UK. And the way that it's structured is a really neat idea that almost makes me wish that I thought of it, which is using climbing around different parts of the country as a way into looking at, in particular, the geology of each of the areas and also more generally about the about some of the, the history and, and culture of the areas. So she's in Yorkshire to begin with, climbing on gritstone, and then she's in North Wales, climbing on slate, moving up to the Coolins on the Isle of Skye. I, I like books that um, 
introduced me to a world that I knew nothing about. And here it's rock climbing, the different styles of rock climbing, how it, just the very basics of it and the sort of jargon of it. There are things like what they call having an epic, which means it's actually like a difficult climb that, that's awful at the time, but you can recount in the pub later as a story. And often often I found I find like technical jargon is very, very sort of fertile for metaphor and symbol and poetry. And so it's quite technical, but also it stands as literature. And then ideas that I hadn't thought of, kind of like as of rock climbing as an artistic practice. So it's not just about trying to get to the top. It's about doing things in a stylish or satisfying way. And she even talks about how sometimes women she's observed them have advantages as climbers over men because of because of our bodies. Another element that I liked about it is that it was a, a, a memoir written by a woman but no way it was about like her trauma or her personal relationship nothing wrong with writing about those things but it was quite refreshing to read a book that was about her development in in skill and confidence as a climber and the book that it reminded me of is that I've, I really enjoyed a few years ago was a book called Swimming to Antarctica by a swimmer called Lynn Cox and then I realized that maybe to my great surprise, I'm interested in sports psychology because it's kind of what, what, both of these, what both of these books are about. And but but beautifully written sports psychology and both what those books both have in common. It's about how doing this physical activity in the natural world leads to to deeper understanding and respect for the natural world by actually spending the time time on rock, the rock face. I, I loved it. Time on rock by Anna Fleming. Sounds really fascinating. Yeah, that sounds great and totally my bag. I think I need to read that. So I'm going to recommend a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Have you heard of this book? No. No? Okay, so it was light. (laughs) It's not. (laughs) Um, It was, I was, I was having a very earnest conversation with a couple of friends about books that had changed our lives and this was one that had changed my friend's life and he sent me a copy and it's like a million copy bestseller in the states you know through maybe maybe it's not as popular now but it was written right after the war and continued to sell and sell and sell copies for a long time and basically frankel was he was a holocaust survivor and he was also a psychotherapist and this is his his record of his experience in the camps but told in the context of a psychological theory that he developed while there, while observing himself and also the other prisoners, which he calls logotherapy. And it's related to the ways in which people are able to find meaning in their lives, even in the most dire of circumstances. So his theory is basically that if people are able to make meaning of their experiences, their life um, and their chances of survival and their ability to thrive will be much better. So the first part of the book is about his his experience and his observations in the camp. The second part talks more generally about the idea of logotherapy that he developed and his kind of practice doing this. It's kind of technical in the second section about, about his therapy practice. And I can't say I completely agree with everything he puts forth. I think like you could go down a road in which the implication is that prisoners in concentration camps had some kind of control over what happened to them because of how they interpreted their experiences. And I don't think that's really true, but it's a very powerful way of thinking about how we live and make meaning of our own existence and our own circumstances and a kind of way to step back and think about the meaning that we make from our own life. It was also... I don't want to say good, but quite sobering to read about his experiences in the camps. I I went through a phase when I was a kid of like reading everything that I could about the Holocaust. And I think I, you know, so many of these images and ideas are so familiar to us that I at least had become kind of desensitized to them. And especially in this age when like every other book published is like the librarian of Auschwitz, you know, the the Holocaust is losing meaning for us. And there was something about how he wrote about it that made it meaningful again. Anyway, very heavy recommendation, but I was glad that I read this book and it made me think a lot in many, many different ways, basically. Yeah, so anyway, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Um, It might change your life. Brilliant. 
That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Amy Liptrot, to Daphne Carnesis for editing, and to Eddie Knight for music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch by email litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plout with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. And I told you that we loved you very much, but Carrie made me cut it, so I'm saying it again here. <laughs> I didn't. It did, just didn't make sense in the context <laughs> of the sentence. Love doesn't have to make sense, baby. <laughs> we do love you. <laughs>